the, uh, the third part, like I said, of a three-part series. And this three-part series has been called Prepared. And the, uh, the idea behind Prepared is, uh, if you haven't been around, is that, um, well, it's about defending your faith without losing your mind. All right? And it's a challenge sometimes because we get into situations um, as a Christian, they, they seem to happen so frequently. There's a quick passing moment. Things are said or things are done. And, and, and something comes up and it was a faith-related thing. But then everything kept going and you go, wow, I'm totally caught off balance. I don't know what to do. You said that thing and, and I didn't know what to say and now what do I do? And time passes. So what we're trying to look at is uh, with the idea of prepared is that we would be prepared what to say when there's little time and even less interest. This whole series about being prepared um, is to respond quickly and succinctly. Um, maybe it will lead you to more conversation. Maybe it won't. But maybe it will bring you to a place where you feel more prepared and you don't need to feel so unbalanced when things happen around you. So this is important um, to, in reaction to family members. Um, and family gatherings especially. It happens in other places, but there's this other family gathering that comes up really soon. It's called Easter, right? You remember that? And, and some of you have families that are all about celebrating Easter, and some of you are, have families that are all about celebrating at this time, and they'll call it Easter. And, and, and when you're there, they, they, they know that you, they had to change the meal time for you because you were going to be at church or they had to do something like that. And so sometimes there's a little comment that comes out, something kind of quickly. And, and maybe in that moment, you're going to hear about somebody's bad church experience. You know what was so bad as people? Or you're going to hear, you know what, Christians, they just don't know how to think. They're missing the point on so much of life in here or something like that. And they, there's, a, there's a quick passing moment. Now, what do you say? What do you say when that comes up in, in that kind of a circumstance? You pretend you didn't hear? Do you, do you just sort of quietly again say, I'm off balance and I don't know what to do. I'll just pretend like it didn't happen. That's not true. Don't be mean to me. Um, but at this kind of a moment, there's something there that, that you want to be able to um, respond. And so we've got this whole ball rolling these last two weeks and this week today. We've started with... Uh, with, with, with something that one of Jesus' close friends wrote, Peter. And Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends, and they, uh, man, Peter was around for almost everything. Uh, basically, everything Jesus did and basically everything that he said. And Peter was one of those first people to, 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 to look into that empty tomb when he didn't think that it was going to be empty at all. As far as he was concerned, that thing should have been full and Jesus should have been in there. He had no anticipation that Jesus wouldn't be there. And so in the, in the first century, he wrote one of his letters, and we call it First Peter. And this is where we get this, this, uh, the frame for our series. First Peter 3.15, he says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. Be ready. Peter's saying that you need to give an answer. You needed to give a defense of the hope you have. You don't have to explain everything else. You don't have to explain every verse in the Bible, every story that ever came up, every action that's gone through history, everything that somebody else knows about. You don't have to explain all of it. What you need to do specifically is be ready to give a reason for the hope 
that you have and why you follow Jesus. That's all we're talking about here. You can learn other stuff. That's great. But we're looking at the immediate kind of entry point here. So today we're going to jump into the most common and what might feel like the most difficult topic in all of, in terms of explaining your hope or, or defending your faith. It has to do with the problem of pain. Um, this is the most emotional pushback on Christianity. This is the emo- most emotional pushback and perhaps the most powerful way to allow yourself to resist the idea of a good God, the problem of pain. Before we fully dive in, I want to make some things really clear, okay? Um, the first thing is who today's message is not for, okay? This is really, really important because the, the tone and, and the framing of this is, is such that it's not for everyone at all times, okay? Timing is so important and sensitivity is so incredibly significant. If you're here today and you are sincerely wrestling with something bad that is going on in your life or has happened in your life, and it's so bad that you are, you're having a hard time maintaining faith in God at all, today's message is not for you. That, that's not the tone. We talked more about this in, in January, uh, well, beginning of March, um, when we looked about, um, I want to believe, but We looked at a similar kind of question, and we answered it in a different way. If you have a friend who's going through a super difficult time right now, and they're having a a hard time holding on to any level of faith, um, any notion that God loves them or that God can be good, today's message is not for them, okay? So this is not something that you want to spout back at someone or say, just listen to this. If this is where you are, if if, if the the depth, the, the pain, the hurt is so much, and that's where you are, I want to recommend a book for you. It's called A Grace Disguised by Jerry Sitzer. This book will help you walk through, at a more gentle pace, some of these huge trials. It's not a novel. It's a true story of the author's life and how God has moved throughout his life in the midst of incredible challenge. Today's message is for those of us who come up against people who are just throwing the dart out there. You know, they they just say, how can there be a good God when? Right? Right? And you have that kind of thing. I don't believe in God because there are so many bad things in the world. And then they follow that line. Good God either doesn't care, doesn't have the power, whatever. And it's that standard sort of argument that comes out. Not usually thought about deeply by people. It's just, it's just a response that you come up with. There is no God because there is pain in the world. So today's message is to help believers so that we can be prepared in those moments for people who aren't currently wrestling with deep things but are using this more as a defense mechanism, right? I don't want to talk about it. I want to talk about God. God's bad because look at the pain. This is important because there are some people who are outside of the experience of the grace of God because of something that happened to them a long, long time ago, something that they were never able to work through. Or because they went to a class, and this is what they talked about in that class, because they're borrowing someone else's cynicism, or because they just don't want to bother with God. I don't believe in God. I don't want to believe in God. And this is the reason that I'm going to say. So this is the easiest way to stiff arm God, right? No, thank you. It's it, just stiff arm Christians. Don't, don't even start, right? That's the way we do it. To stiff arm the church. You have no place to speak into our society in any way because 
everything you believe is kind of nutso. And they sort of just throw the big blanket statement out there. I can't, no one should ever believe in God. There is no such thing as God. There's certainly no such thing as a good God because look at all the pain and suffering in the world. End of subject, end of discussion. It's self-evident. We don't need to talk about it any farther. So it's very important that we are prepared to have a response to this, not to argue, okay? Don't, don't think of this as a way to try and get engaged in an argument that you desire to win. That old feeling of how to argue people into submission is dead. It is so dead. Um, please don't do it. You can never end up really winning an argument that boils down to believe in Jesus or you're stupid. Please don't let yourself be drawn into that kind of a mindset. This is to engage in conversation, not to try and beat or win something. But it's important at the same time to let the world know that Christians have thought about this. This is not new information. You're not the one to make this discovery. Pain in the world and suffering in the world, it's not a reason to stiff arm God. It's not a reason to put God in your rearview mirror and keep on going with your life. Today we're going to look at two sentences of response to help you be prepared so that you will have something to say. Although clearly, all right, we we'll say it up front, this is not going to have the depth. It's not going to have the definitiveness of answers that you'd get after reading large volumes because we're talking about little bits of time, right? So just to let people know that you have thought about it. They are not the only ones to have thought these things or to process these issues. And if they are interested, there are more answers. There are more thoughts than they might have considered. The first one is simple. The second one, we'll call it interesting. Okay? So the first one, the very first response, here it is. I don't believe in God because look at all the bad things that are in the world. There's so much pain. Have you read anything on this topic? On this topic? But how could there be a God? I don't believe in a God. I don't like a God who would ever. Those children, how could a God? I know it's so hard to see things like that and, and to somehow reconcile an evil world with a good God. But let me ask you a quick question. Have you ever read anything on that topic? That's it. Stop. Don't bring out a book list. The answer for the vast majority of people at that point is no. Never have. The reason that this is helpful is because it acknowledges both the issue and that it's been around long enough for people to do some thinking and some writing. Every generation since Jesus has had an answer for this question. They have written about it. They have thought about it. They've come up with something contemporary to their time to deal with this. As in all areas, finding or identifying the problem is not the hard work. It's easy to find problems. Finding solutions is the hard work. There have been so many people struggling with what you're struggling with that entire books have been written. So if you're ever really genuinely interested in moving past this obstacle, then there are things that you can do. There are things that you could read. I'm curious because it, it seems like it really bothers you. You're very upset. Have you ever taken the next step? Have you ever read anything about that topic? If they say yes, then you say, what? What have you read? And you have a conversation about that. Second response. Remember, who this sermon is for and who it is not for. 
This is not an appropriate way to aid someone who is in the midst of deep pain. This is for people who are dealing with the roadblock of pain. Question. If you could, would you remove everything bad from the world right now? If you could push a button and suddenly everything bad in the world would instantly go away, would you push it? Oh, just before you push the button, um, have you ever done anything bad? Just before you push the button, have your children ever done anything bad? Do you think that your father before you or your mother ever did anything bad? What would have happened if your father, before he met your mother, somebody got to push that button? How many people would be here today? The only way for God to remove this complaint about God is to remove all the complainers. The only way for God to remove this chief complaint about God, God, how, how, how can you allow that? God, why are you not doing more about this thing that I'm seeing? God, why have you not removed evil? The only way for God to remove our cheap, most emotionally charged and layered argument against the idea of a good God is to remove all the complainers. Then there wouldn't be anyone around to ask the question. So it's a good question. And that might very well be the end of the conversation. That might stop it right there. But if it does go on, here's something you should know as a Christian. If you have not, um, if you have a good reason to not do away with everything bad, is it possible that God has a reason to? If you would hesitate in the moment of getting rid of everything bad in this world, is it possible that God has a reason as well? Christians believe that God has a reason. Christians believe that you and I are the reason God doesn't push that button. The reason that God doesn't suddenly get rid of all the evil in the world is the same reason that I don't want to get rid of all of the evil in the world. Because I would have to get rid of everyone I know, everyone I've ever met, and everyone that I've ever come across. I would also have to get rid of me. The Scripture teaches, and Christians have always believed, that God is patient with people. He is heartbroken. He is sick at heart over the evil in this world, and he's more sick about it than you are. But there is a reason he waits, just like there would be a reason that we would hesitate before we push the big button. Now, Jesus, who, no, Peter, who knew Jesus, he hung out with Jesus. He watched Jesus. He, he saw everything that he did. He, he heard basically everything he ever said. He wrote this down. Um, he told us that we needed to be prepared, right? We need to be prepared to give a reason for the hope. He also said this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient. The thing that you would like to see happen in this world Christians have always believed that God would like to see it 
as well. God is as disturbed, if not more disturbed, than you are. You have not pointed out any evil in the world that God is saying, oh, I didn't see that one. Oh, if I had only known that was going to happen. God has entered into our pain. But the reason he is not something more, done something more about it, is because he is patient. Patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. If you could push the button and get rid of all the bad in the world, would you do it? Well, what do you mean by bad? Right? It's tricky. What do you mean by bad? What qualifies as bad? Christians believe that you are the reason, that I am the reason that God hesitates. And all of this discussion points to a level of hypocrisy when it comes to complaining about the level of evil in the world. For me, for you, for Christians, for non-Christians, for, for people from any and every other faith, we are all involved in this hypocrisy together. The, the hypocrisy might look like this. When you have a problem, I pray for you. When I have a problem, I doubt God. The only time I doubt God about other people's problems is when it's people I care about. So what's that? That's the hypocrisy in us. Something horrible happens to someone who I don't really know. And I say, oh, that's terrible. What a hard time. Let's pray for her. And that doesn't hurt my faith. It helps my faith. Now I'm praying, and I'm praying compassionately for someone. I might be even so moved that I get to know them, get to know them more, and we can pray together. But when the same things happen to me or to someone I care about, I say, oh, God, why are you doing this? That's me kind of wanting to get rid of all the evil in the world. All the evil in the world that impacts me personally. But it affects you. If it affects you, oh, I'm just so sorry that that had to happen to you. So, what we all really want is a can of justice. And we can pick up our can of justice, and whenever we see injustice, we just get rid of it. Right? Just shout it out. That's what we need to do. You mistreat children. Away with you. All the people who work for the government who are ruining everything good in this world, just get rid of them all. Right? Everybody from the political party that's not mine, see ya. Whenever I see injustice, I want to get out my can of justice and control that situation. Hey, justice smells pretty good, doesn't it? When I see it, I evaluate it. Then I do something about it. I want to be able to spray it where I want, when I want. But there's something else that we want. We want a can of bad spray. Not bug spray, bad spray. Whenever I see something bad, just spray it. Just get rid of it. Those people 
hang around playgrounds trying to sell drugs to kids? Bad spray on you. Spray them. Make them go away. Anybody who abuses other people, spray them. Anybody who thinks about getting involved in human trafficking, spray them and spray them and spray them again, just for good measure. It's human trafficking. Both of those. The key is I want to hold the can. I don't want you to hold the can. And you know why I don't want you to hold the can of justice and the can of bad spray? Because you might decide to spray me. Because I've been unjust. And I've been bad. Now, I want to hold these cans, and I don't want you to hold these cans, but together I think we can all agree that we don't want God to hold these cans. What if God had those cans? If you have ever done something unjust or might be considered unjust to another person, raise your hand. Okay, that's just a warm-up. If you have ever done anything in your whole life that could be called bad, would you please raise your hand? And that's the problem. It's not a problem if I'm holding the cans. If I think it's unjust, I just spray. If I think it's bad, I just spray. But we don't want God to do this. And here's why, and it's true of all of us. We want aerosol justice and we want aerosol goodness. But we don't want to get rid of badness or injustice that might get a little too personal or that doesn't go by my standard. We don't want to get rid of everything bad in the world because we might be the first people to qualify. So again, we have a wee bit of hypocrisy there. There's a dabbling in some injustice. There's a sense that I am really making myself out to be God because he's not doing a good enough job anyways because I will decide what is just and I will decide what is bad and I will decide what is good and not bad and it all rests on me. This whole thing rests on a couple of assumptions that we have. Assumption number one, certain things ought not be. There's almost a universal assumption. There are certain things that ought not to be. The reason that you want a can of justice, there are certain things that you believe ought not be. The reason you want a can of bad spray is because you believe that there are some things that ought not to be. It was this sense of ought and ought not that moved one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, the British writer, scholar, um, theologian, these are things that moved him from being an atheist to being a theist. Not to being a Christian, not yet anyways, but to being a theist, someone who believes in God. The thing that broke through his skepticism in terms of the existence of God was the issue of ought and ought not. In his books, especially Mere Christianity, he explains that he realized that there was something in him that thought that other people ought to do certain things. So then he asked, where does ought come from? 
Because if I made it up, I have no right to hold anyone else accountable. But if I didn't make it up, then somebody put ought and ought not inside of me. And then it seems that 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 same someone put the same ought and ought not in the people around me. But larger than that, it seems that there is a global sense of ought and ought not. So if it came from someone somewhere else, where did it come from? And if it didn't come from somewhere else and we just made it up, then we have no right to impose our ought and ought not on anybody else. And it just bothered him and bothered him and he played it over in his mind again and again. This was the thing that drove him to his conclusion. It was the injustice in the world. It was the sin in the world. It was the evil in the world that finally caused him to raise his eyes and recognize that there is a creator God. A moral judge over the whole universe. He wasn't ready yet to say that was Jesus or that Jesus was the Son of God or that it was the God of the Bible yet. But he recognized this unavoidable and inescapable sense of ought and ought not. It came from somewhere outside of me. The fact that you are interested in ordering yourself a can of justice or a can of bad spray is evidence of the fact that you know things are not right. And you don't think that you made that standard up. You think it's widely recognized among people. So here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. Quarreling means to try to show that the other man is in the wrong. And there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are. You are both appealing to a standard. You ought to. Where did the standard come from? He goes on. Supposing you hear a cry for help from a man in danger, you will probably feel two desires. One, a desire to give help due to your herd instinct. The other, the desire to keep out of danger due to your instinct for self-preservation. But you will find inside you in addition to those two impulses, a third, which tells you that you ought to follow the impulse to help and suppress the impulse to run away. As much as the evil in this world seems to argue against God, perhaps the fact that I recognize that things are not the way they ought to be is an argument for a moral law and a moral law giver. Here's the way that Ravi Zacharias, just a, a brilliant thinker and Christian apologist, describes it. And he's, he's fast, so you got to listen. When you say there's too much evil in this world, you assume there's good. When you assume there's good, you assume there's such a thing as a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. But if you assume a moral law, you posit a moral law giver. But that's who you're trying to disprove and not prove. Because if there's no moral law giver, there's no moral law. 
If there's no moral law, then there's no good. If there's no good, there's no evil. What was your question? Assumption number two. The world is broken. Not just human beings, but the world. Earthquakes, tornadoes, tsunamis, floods, mudslides, cancer, brain tumors. The world is broken and it goes beyond just human behavior. That's why we would love the can of justice. Because it's not, we just know it's just not right that innocent people should suffer. Because it's just not right that somebody just going about their, their regular day can be swept away by the awesome power of a hurricane. There's something in us that says that ought not to be. Something's wrong with the world. Something's wrong with me. I can't even keep my own rules. Something's wrong with us. I can't even obey the law sometimes, even when I agree with the law. I'm so glad that we have law enforcement people around to keep all of you in line. And then I try to go and avoid the law enforcement people so that I can break the law. Anybody relate? How fast did you drive here? Uh, but here's the thing that you need to know as a Christian. This is what I hope that you would think about. And, and, and if you're still considering being a, becoming a Christian, that you would think about this. The world is broken. We recognize that. But Christians have always believed since the time of Jesus that the current world is not the final version. Jesus taught it. Peter taught it. Paul taught it. The entire book of Revelation points toward it. Christians have always believed that the world did not start off broken. The world was not broken when God handed it over to humanity. Then God created in humanity our most coveted attribute. Freedom to choose. This world is not the original version. And it's not the final version. And it's not the ultimate version. But Christians have also always believed that the current world is the best path to the best possible world. The current world, with all of its problems and all, all of its brokenness, all of its dysfunction and all the things that we wish we could change or remove or destroy, all of that is part of the best path to the best possible world. Most Christians throughout the ages, as they thought about it, as they wrote about it, as they discussed it, as they studied it, they said that it's a necessary path to the best possible world. So Christians believe the best possible world is a world where men and women are free to sin, but freely choose not to. The best possible world is where there is a knowledge of good and evil. The best possible world is where there is the experience of the consequence of evil. The best possible world is where we may freely choose to love, freely choose to worship, freely choose to serve, freely choose to give, but we, we have the power to freely choose to say no to anything that would undermine the dignity of another person. Free to say no to temptation. Free to say no to anything that would elevate me above someone else. Free to say no to all those things that create such chaos in our cities, in our country, and in our world. The best possible world, Jesus pointed toward it. The best possible world, the entire New Testament 
points toward it. The best possible world is where there is a knowledge of good and evil, where humanity has the freedom to choose and freely choose to not engage in self-destructive behavior. That's the best possible world. Now, is there anyone here who remembers when cars came with cigarette lighters? Anybody can remember this kind of time? All right. You remember that you, you push the cigarette lighter in, you wait a minute or two, and then it pops out a little bit. And you can play with that when you were driving, right? You just play it, put it in, not when you were driving, when you're the passenger, uh, or maybe when you're the driver. And there was probably that time that you pushed it in, and then you waited it, and you pulled it out, and you look at it, and you look inside it, and you saw the orange glow. If you put your finger in there to feel what orange feels like, you will remember it. No one needs to say, go and write lines, I will not do this again. I will not touch the orange part of a cigarette lighter. Why? Will you forget? Will you be unclear? No. There are no educational steps left. You will need you will never need to be told again that when the desire comes up and the temptation is there, I will never do it again. In fact, the desire diminishes. The temptation disappears. The orange glow no longer needs to be touched. The whole in-car game has changed. There's no point to the game anymore. You might never have thought of this before, but here's what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Romans. I consider our present sufferings. This was written in the first century, okay? So we always got to jump back to that. Paul, who's writing this, was well acquainted with suffering. Now, sure, granted, he never had a phone that dropped a call. And, and he never wandered into a room that had no Wi-Fi. But he still knows something about suffering. Shipwreck, flogging, being stoned, um, being run out of towns, being beaten with rods, um, being left for dead more than once. The people who have carried the Christian torch forward throughout the generations have always suffered. Jesus, our Savior, the center point of our faith, the whole point of Christianity entered on purpose into extreme suffering and never lost faith. I consider our present sufferings not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. There is something different. There is something that is going to happen. This is not our final form. This is not our final resting place. This is not the way God created any of this to be. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. When mankind sinned, everything under mankind's authority suffered. It wasn't fair, but it was true. And you know what this is like. You have suffered because of decisions your parents have made. It's not fair, but it is true. Some of you are predisposed to certain illnesses because of who you are related to. It's not fair, but it's true. 
When mankind sinned and allowed sin to enter the world, it entered everything. It entered the entire world. That's why we know it's broken. There is a vestige of the image of God left in us. Our ought and ought not is still informed because of the presence of God in some form that exists in every single human heart. We know something's wrong. We know it should be better. We know there's a way forward. We know that ultimately for things to be fixed, something has to change at the macro level. The aerosol level is not going to be enough. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. There is no emotionally satisfying answer for pain and suffering. There is no answer that once you hear, you will say, oh, now I'm totally okay with the pain and suffering of little children around the world. There is enough of the image of God left over in you that you will always be dissatisfied with the decay of this world. As long as innocent people suffer, you will be unhappy. And that is a view into the image of God within you. That is proof, that is evidence of a God in the universe. And there is a God who has the capacity to have a personal relationship and interaction with you. So we, together, we're going to continue to push back against evil. We're going to continue to try and rescue innocent children. We're going to continue to wrestle with injustice. We're going to continue to release as much of the kingdom of God into this world as we can. We're going to continue to do all that we can, but we recognize in the midst of this decaying world that the ultimate hope isn't us. The only hope is a renewed world. And we will continue to resist. And we will continue to fight. But we recognize that our ultimate hope is the prayer at the end of the book of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Because we recognize that pain and suffering is not an indication of the absence of God, but that we know that things are not right and they ought to be better. So here's our short answer. If God removed evil from the world, he would have to begin with me. I believe God entered this evil world through his son to forgive me rather than to remove me. I believe he died for my sin and he rose from the dead, but not because the Bible says so. It's better than that. But in the meantime, I will pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about these things. Thank you for the constant reminder that things aren't right. While we fight for justice and while we fight for what is right, while we press into those areas in our communities that still need to be changed, those of us who are Christians will be quick to say, apart from you, it will never be right. And apart from you, it will never be completely fixed. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Holy Spirit, would you now remove the blinders from our eyes for those of us who have used this as an excuse to resist and reject you. Thank you that you sent your son into this world and you didn't dodge any of it. You sent your son to walk right into the midst of some of the most intense pain and suffering imaginable, all to save me, to save us, to save anyone who will accept your generous grace. Please give us wisdom to know what to do with what we have just heard. 
Give us boldness to do it. Then use us, please, to accomplish your will in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In his name, be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. Ah, thanks for being with us today. It's better when you're here. It's better when we're together. I'm convinced that the more we connect, the better it gets. I want to send you out again, reminding you, you're not simply dismissed and allowed to go. You're being sent. And as you go, you are the church. So go take the church with you. Go take the love of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, the freedom of Jesus with you and share it. Remember that we are Christ-centered. We are spirit-empowered and that we are mission-focused. And that mission is for everyone, everywhere, all the time.